0: Well, good morning. This has been a fun week for me, uh, because it's been the first week where Drew and I have been working together. We've we've been working together in some ways for like a year and a half, but uh, the first week where we're working together as colleagues. And that's been a great joy, so thank you, Drew. I'm Mark, for those of you that I haven't met, and we've just come out of uh, Advent and Christmas season here. And we've been looking, uh, you've probably heard... Uh, This this title given to Jesus, uh, Emmanuel, God with us, that's one that in Advent and Christmas we speak and hear a lot about, Uh, and certainly God is with us in Jesus, But, but how is God with us? If we are honest, probably at different times in our lives, we conceive of God being with us in different ways, and I think one of them, if you're like me, probably ends up feeling like a coach. Uh, and there are different kinds of coaches, right? <laughs> uh, I, I participated in a lot of sports growing up and um, had many different coaches, right? And, and sometimes we, we picture God like the coach who is on the sideline, and he's just yelling at us to run faster, right? He's telling us to do more, to, to sin less, to be faster and stronger. And uh, I, had, I had some of those coaches. Uh, well, I... Um, <laughs> Summer will be quick to tell you that if you want to see me cry, show me an inspirational sports movie. Those get me. Uh, yeah, or, or the Iron Man, where they tell give you the backstory of the guy who's pushing his quadriplegic son through the... Anyways, it's amazing. Uh, there's a movie that came out um, a few years ago called McFarland USA. And so inspirational sports movies are one thing. When they're about cross-country running and track... It's like the next level of inspirational <laughs> sports movies. And, and the, the story focuses on a coach who uh, who is changed through a series of events in his life. Uh, he's a football coach, and he's got some anger issues, and he gets fired from his job. And he ends up as the accidental cross-country coach. He's this, this white middle-aged guy. He ends up as the accidental cross-country coach at a Hispanic high school in the middle of California where the vast majority of the families that are in the area uh, are farm workers. They're, They're pickers. They pick produce. And he starts off as that coach who's just yelling at his team to run faster, just push through it, do more. And he's kind of on the sidelines, right, just yelling at them to run faster. Well, as he gets to know them and as his family gets brought into the community, brought into the community of families uh, who are, um, whose sons are part of his team. Uh, he gets to know them and r- learns about their life, learns that they are most of his students are spending their early morning hours picking lettuce in the fields with their older brothers, with their fathers, then going to school, then having cross-country practice, then picking some more, then going home and doing their homework. And so he decides to join them one morning. Picking lettuce before school starts. Um, and he discovers how difficult that is uh, and the challenges that these families go through. But uh, and it's this turning point in the movie, in the, the coach's character and in the way that he coaches. Uh, and it's a, it's a I'll I'll let you watch the movie. It's classic Disney feel good. Kevin Costner's the coach. So come on. Um <laughs> But the the transition of the way that he coaches from this coach who yells on the sidelines for them to run faster to this coach who is with them in their pain, with them in the challenges, with them in their suffering. Uh, I'm not going to draw too many comparisons that Kevin Costner is like Jesus in this way. But uh, it does. It speaks to me a little bit about what God is like when we say, Emmanuel, God with us. That God is with us in the everyday challenges of life. He's certainly with us in the joys and in the, the, the times of celebration, but he is particularly and especially with us in the suffering, in the times of life that are difficult. Last week we looked at uh, a passage in Isaiah that where he spoke of the suffering servant. right? And the New Testament writers looked back at this passage in light of Jesus, and they were like, that actually, that describes Jesus really well. Jesus is the suffering servant, the one sent by God to suffer with and on behalf of his people. Uh, To to bring some of you up to speed that haven't been with us, we're working our way through uh, the New City Catechism. It's a a kind of a a modern take of some of these ancient catechism questions that the church has used to to train her people in in the basics of the faith. And we're taking a turn in the catechism now from looking at the creation of the world and and, and all the goodness of that, the brokenness of humanity and the brokenness of the world. And we're looking at how, how is this problem solved? What's the solution? We're looking at the Redeemer. Who is the Redeemer? What is the Redeemer like? And the writer of the book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to be this morning, he wants his readers to know that Jesus is the perfect Redeemer and is the perfect answer to the problems that we see in our own life and in the world around us. He develops this theme through the the book of Hebrews uh, that Jesus is this great high priest, the only one who can bridge that gap between God, perfect, holy God, and sinful, broken humanity. That Jesus is fully God and fully human. This is a theme that gets developed in the, in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to read a little bit from chapter 2. So if you want to open your Bibles to chapter 2, it'll be on the screen as well. You pull up your phones if you have it on your phone. Hebrews 2, we're going to start in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, humanity. That's who he's talking about. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels. He helps, but Abraham's descendants, people, us for this reason. He had to be made like them fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Lord, we thank you for this good news this morning. Open our ears, open our hearts, that we would hear it and receive it, that your word would go deep into our lives, that it would bear fruit, that you and the power of your Holy Spirit would change us so that individually and together as a community we would better reflect the image of our Savior, Jesus, who suffered and died and was raised to new life. Amen. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if any of you know Joel uh, Heflin, Joel and Kira, and their two, uh, their two kids. They just recently joined as, as members here, so you might have seen them up front. But Joel and I were talking last week, after this uh, passage on the suffering servant, and, and he was telling me about some reading that he was doing. And Joel, I, I don't think he's here. Joel, are you here? Nope. Uh, he. Joel's the kind of guy that reads like ancient theologians for fun, and, which I love. So I love people like Joel. Uh, and he's, he's, telling, he's telling me about what he's reading and how this, this, this guy was kind of radically uh, shifting some of how he reads the New Testament. Because the New Testament writers, every, everything that they experienced and that they remembered uh, and that they recalled and retold about Jesus' life, they were retelling from the perspective of the resurrection. Jesus had been raised to new life, and this was a completely disruptive event for them. They had no category to put this in. And so as they started writing down the life of Jesus, as they they started writing the Gospels, as they started writing letters to these fledgling churches in nearby regions, they're looking back over Jesus' life, ministry, his death, And it's through the lens of the resurrection. And so without that, you know, they would have probably told the story of Jesus for a few generations, but it would have ended in ultimately what would have been a tragedy. It just would have been kind of a sad story about a really great man who got murdered by the oppressive conquering uh, nation that, that was ruling their land. But because they were viewing all of this through the lens of the resurrection, Jesus' whole life, and especially his suffering and his death, took on completely new meaning. It was no longer this sad tragedy where we should feel bad for Jesus, but it was a purposeful, intentional move by God to save his people in a way that we could not have possibly imagined. In a way that was so upside down that it didn't make sense unless it was simply received as a gift and received in faith. I wanna read um, a portion from a commentary that I was reading this week by F.F. F. Bruce that, that speaks to this more eloquently than I could put it. And it just it sort of helps us to, to imagine that we're the recipients of this, this letter to the Hebrews, right? We're, we're not that far off from the life of Jesus. And, and here's this incredible news that this man who he was fully human and fully divine suffered and died and was raised to new life. What do we do with this? What, I don't have categories for this sort of news. It calls for an exceptional effort of our minds on our part to appreciate how paradoxical was the attitude of those early Christians to the death of Christ. If ever death had appeared to be triumphant, it was when Jesus of Nazareth, who was disowned by his nation, abandoned by his disciples, executed by the might of imperial Rome, when he breathed his last on the cross why some had actually recognized in his cry of pain and desolation the complaint that even God had forsaken him. His faithful followers had confidently expected that he was the destined liberator of Israel, that he would throw off the yoke of Roman oppression and free the nation. But he had died, and not even fighting, not like Judas of Galilee or Judas Maccabeus, who had had led some rebellions around the time of Jesus. Um, in the forefront of the struggle against the Gentile oppressors of Israel, but he had died in evident weakness and disgrace. And their hopes died with him. If ever a cause was lost, it was Jesus. If ever the powers of evil were victorious, it was then. And yet, within a generation, his followers were exultingly proclaiming the crucified Jesus to be the conqueror of death. And asserting, like the author of Hebrews here, that by dying, he had reduced the Lord of death to impotence. The keys of death and hell were, were held firmly in Jesus' powerful hand. For he, in the language of a parable that he used, had invaded the strong man's fortress, disarmed him, bound him fast, and robbed him of his spoil. This is the unanimous witness of the New Testament writers This was the assurance which nerved martyrs to face death boldly in his name. This sudden change from disillusionment to triumph can only be explained by the account which the apostles gave that their master rose from the dead and imparted to them the power of his risen life. Earlier in chapter 2, the author writes this, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered. Which sounds like heresy, because if Jesus wasn't already perfect, then he wasn't really already God. But the sense in which he is made perfect is that he he becomes able to so fully identify with us as humans in his suffering that he is able to be this great high priest, this, this, this mediator between God and humanity because he suffered, because he knows the pain of being a human. And so this tension of fully divine and fully human is held together in the person of Jesus, and only he is able to reconcile this relationship between God and humanity. He's perfectly God and perfectly able to represent God to us, but also then to represent us to God. He also redefines humanity. He shares in our humanity to deal with what we are, to deal with our sin, but also to reveal what we might become in him. his suffering, he so completely identifies with us. This passage ends with a word of encouragement for all who are facing suffering or trials or temptations. It's a, a word in the Greek that's a little bit flexible and can mean uh, suffering, it can mean trials, it can mean temptations. Verse 18 says this, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those are being tempted or who are facing trials if your life is completely temptation or trial free then this passage is not for you but if you find yourself facing a trial facing a temptation struggling in any way take comfort Jesus because he suffered is able to help those of us who are facing these trials these temptations This has, been a, um, this has been a hard year for our family. It's been a wonderful year in many ways. We've had many, many joys, um, but it's been almost a year now that we brought Carter and Caleb into our home through the foster care system, uh, and it has been much more difficult and challenging than we anticipated when we decided to do this. Uh, it's been hard. It's stretched us in ways that we could not have imagined. Uh, and then uh, most of you know about a month after they joined our family, my mom had a, a, a significant stroke that uh, has really impacted both her and my dad's life um, in some profound ways. So this has been this has been a hard year, and we were uh, we were reflecting on this with Reba and Jeremy. I don't know who you guys are last night at dinner. Uh, Reba's had a hard year. Reba lost her father this year, and we were reflecting on um, what do we do with the challenges and the suffering of our lives. I mean, if our hope is that death is not the last word, wouldn't it be just, wouldn't it make more sense if when hard times came, Jesus just finished us off and <laughs> took us to be with him, saved us from the suffering, just got it over with, and, right? And we would be with him where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, right? This is the, this is the hope that we have. And yet, uh, that doesn't happen. We, we, do, we do suffer, we, we, do, we do struggle, we face trials, temptations. And there's this promise that he is able to help us. There's a promise that Jesus actually is Emmanuel, God with us. And the only way that I can kind of make sense of all of that is that one day, one day we too are going to look back at our lives through the lens of the resurrection. And we're going to reinterpret various moments of our lives in light of the resurrection in ways that are just impossible for us to imagine right now. And I I think that that's faith. (laughs) I think that that's faith and trust in God who is greater than death, in Jesus who took our suffering but also suffers with us. That though I don't fully understand why things are difficult, or, or how good can come from difficult times, uh, that one day I will look back through the lens of the resurrection, and that will make all the difference. I've uh, I had a longer quote from one of the um, commentaries I read. I have another quote that I like to read. This one I've got on here. This is from an early church father. Uh, John Chrysostom, his last name means like golden tongued. He was he was a, a great orator. He he wrote well, uh, and this is this is a gem. And this actually comes uh, as we're going through this new city catechism. There's a, a devotional book that goes with it. that I think some of you may have. It's also on their free web app if you're interested in looking at that, or the app on the phone. For each question and answer that this catechism works through, there's uh, an ancient author that they pull from, and then a modern author. And this is. An ancient, ancient author, but it is powerful. So this is where I want to end with today. Let no one weep for his iniquities, for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. Inasmuch as he was held captive of it, he has annihilated it. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He angered it when it tasted of his flesh. And Isaiah, for telling this, he did cry, Hell, said he, was angered when it encountered thee. It was angered, for it was abolished. It was angered, for it was mocked. It was angered, for it was slain. It was angered, for it was fettered in chains. It took a body, and it met God face to face. It took earth. And encountered heaven. It took that which was visible and it fell upon the invisible. O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen and thou art overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Amen. Before we come to communion this morning, I want to take some time in prayer. Um, So if you would, just take a moment to take a deep breath. Maybe there's a part of that passage from Hebrews that's been resonating in your mind. Let that guide us in our prayer time tonight or this morning.